the radio in. Hello, everyone. It's time for Evidence for Faith, the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we'd like to welcome you once again. This is a weekly program every Sunday at 4 p.m. in southern New Jersey on WIBG from Ocean City. You can find us on podcast at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four faith.com. Kirk, looks like we've got another good show today. This is going to be returning to the topic of critical thinking. Okay. So we will dig into that in just a minute. I've got a quote for the day, though. This is from Ravi Zacharias and came to me via Apologetics 315, which is a great website. This is from his book, Jesus Among Other Gods. And it says, The character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive in its practice, and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. So comment from Ravi Zacharias on the character of Jesus Christ. Wow, That's a good terrific. One. Yeah. I'm going to save that one for later. All right, we also have a letter from one of our listeners, but you said you had a news item. Yeah, I have an interesting little uh, TV note here, if you're a TV fan, a show you might be interested in watching, or perhaps not. <laughs> uh, it's on this Wednesday at 8 p.m. It's the uh, the series called Nova, which airs on your local PBS channel. Right. Uh, interestingly enough, the episode this week is called Where Did We Come From? And the interesting thing about this listing I found in the TV guide is that it uh, mentions um, a treasure trove of clues that they have recently discovered about how humans have evolved. And guess where those treasure trove of clues comes from? You tell me. Headlights. All right. Yes. Headlights, which have been tormenting mankind for most of our existence, it says, turns out to give us a huge number of clues about where we came from. Isn't that wonderful? Okay. I'm really well, interested see. to I'm see how they explain that. I'm, yeah, I'm wondering if this has to do with maybe when they're saying where we came from, maybe they're trying to follow that National Geographic effort to map the spread of human beings across the globe and it's fits into that supposed out of africa theory so maybe they are doing dna testing of head lice as well as dna testing of people to see if they can track because i guess i'm assuming that head lice would travel with men i don't know that head lice are 
indigenous only to people or if they are also carried on animals? I don't know. I imagine that there are probably more than one kind of lice. <laughs> yes. There may be animal lice and there may be human lice. <laughs> I don't know. Yep. I'm guessing. Yeah. But, well, uh, yeah, you may be right about that, but it also uh, it mentions here that it's going to give us clues about how humans have evolved. So okay. I'm wondering how they make the connection there. All right. Well, we'll have to see. We'll have to tune in and, and see what they have to say. But the wonderful thing is that uh, so far we have found out that we have evolved from pond scum, and now we have evolved from head lice. So it's getting better. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see if that's what they say. <laughs> yes. Tune in, and we'll find out the answer to the question, where right, did we come from, or at least where Nova thinks we came from. Right. How are, how are we related to head lice? Right. <laughs> All right, let's see. I, I yeah, I have an ant that kind of remo reminds me of the head lice, but let's oh, not dear. get into that. <laughs> Caught some while you were visiting her. <laughs> we got an email that came from SK, and SK had written us before. He's an atheist, and he had a good question. So we responded to that, and he responds back. So I thought I would read that. I comment to him a little before we get to his email. I say, SK, it's good to hear from you again. Most of what you say in this email gives me the idea that you do understand my position, but a few items made me think you are still missing some of my points. Not that you have to agree with me, but certainly we can't agree if I can't make myself understood. After we achieve clarity, then we can decide about agreement. I made a few comments in the body of your text. So his email says, and again, remember, this is like his second email to us. Mm -hmm. He says, thank you for your reply. I understand if you don't answer this email, I'm sure you must get a lot. You introduce the distinction of universal versus particular negatives. This is defined in Encyclopedia Britannica as, and then he gives the link, but he also then gives the definitions, which agreed with the definitions that I gave him. Mm -hmm. A universal negative, and it has the example, every beta is not an alpha, or equivalently, no beta is an alpha. And then, on the other hand, a particular negative would be some beta is not an alpha, where beta is a category and some beta is a subset of all individuals in the beta category. So he goes on to say then, after giving that definition, therefore, statements about the existence of a god, or gods in plural, in their universal and particular form would be a universal, all gods do not exist, this includes all gods ever listed, and a particular version would be Zeus does not exist or the God of the Christians does not exist. Okay, so he's now he's just translated the definitions and given them particular identity with those arguments about the existence of God. Right. So he goes on to say, the notion of distinction between universal and particular negatives does not make separate the statements about non-existence between the particular Zeus and the particular Christian God. Both are particular negatives. 
both could be labeled, I assume, as irrational by you. Okay, so this is where he misunderstood what I was trying to say. Okay. So I responded, I agreed with everything you said up to this last sentence. Particular negatives can be supported by evidence, which makes them rational to postulate. Universal negatives, on the other hand, cannot be known. And then I give the definition of knowledge as justified true belief. This by itself doesn't make it irrational. So it's not irrational to necessarily hold such a belief, but it would be irrational to hold such a belief as knowledge. If you're going to say, I know it's true that there are no gods, that's an irrational statement. Okay. But you could say, I believe there are no gods, and that would kind of yeah. be all right. That's right, because your you're putting it opinion. into like a probabilistic, I think there might not be any gods, something like that. Right. But if you, and you can hold the belief, but once you try to communicate, once you assert that it's true, if you assert it, then if you say something like, there are no gods, because you're asserting that statement, you're, by definition, you're saying that that is a true statement. There are no gods, right? right? You're putting that out as that that's the truth. Okay, but you can never know. And that's a universal know. negative. Right. That's a universal negative. You can never know whether it's true or not. Therefore, it's irrational to assert it. Right. So you could, you could hold it priv privately. You know, you could think, oh, well, I guess the odds are 51% that there's no God and they're 49% that there is a God. But the moment you try to assert it, that's when you become irrational. I see. So I hope that makes sense. Another word for that would be a know-it-all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you yeah, assert, no. I know, you know, Stop that there are no gods anywhere in the universe, then that's a know-it-all statement. <laughs> exactly. You'd have to be as smart as God to even assert that. Right. You'd have to be familiar with the entire universe in order to know that. Correct. So he goes on to say, and he's referring to a statement that I made about disproving negatives. Furthermore, there is no coffee in my cup is a difficult negative to prove. I was using it as an example that you can prove a negative because sometimes right. atheists will say that you can't prove a negative. Well, that's not true. We prove negatives all the time. Sure. And I gave the example, there's no coffee in my cup. Okay, or, you could, or I could say my car is blue when it's yellow. That's um, a false well, statement. Yeah, you'd be saying, and you can easily prove that, that it's false. Right. You're saying my car is not blue okay so that's a negative right my car is not blue okay so, right it's a negative can right. you prove it sure just take a picture here's a picture of it guess what color it is it's yellow right so we prove negatives all the time that's a particular negative correct okay let's see so then he goes on to say just as saying there is no teacup orbiting the sun or there is no god you would have to make an account of every single molecule within the cup to make sure that none of them are coffee. In the <laughs> colloquial, non-absolute sense, I can state that there's no coffee in my cup, even though there are many drops left. Sure. And then he says in parentheses, in order to get the waitress to give me some more, for instance. <laughs> right. Right, and that's true, of course, and that's, of course, the common sense method that I meant it when I said that. We're, we're getting really nitpicky here when you say you can't say, well, there's no coffee in my cup because there's actually a drop still left in there. 
<laughs> right. Or even if there's an invisible molecule, right, hiding right. in some crevice. Right. You know, there, and I need an electron scanning microscope to find it, but, it, you know, it's there. <laughs> right. Right. So in the same sense... Now we're really getting picky. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So he goes on to say, in the same sense, one could say that for a given threshold of arguments and evidence, there is no Zeus, there is no Christian God. It's just a matter of setting that threshold higher and, or lower. I repeat, when deal, dealing in absolutes, there is no notion of a threshold. So you now, I agree with what he's talking about. We talk in generalities and we talk in kind of colloquial speech all the time right and you know so if i say my coffee cup is empty i'm not necessarily meaning to imply that there isn't a single molecule <laughs> right I, I may have just finished <laughs> drinking the coffee out of it and so the yeah indeed there might be a molecule of coffee left in the bottom of the cup <laughs> so we have to uh, kind of allow the common sense meaning of words when we're speaking to each other. Sure. So I, I answered, I said, I, I think I largely agree with you here up to a point. We just have to be careful of the fallacy of the beard. Now, this is an interesting fallacy, and we don't have it on our list of fallacies to talk about today or next week, but maybe we should add it. In some cases, we cannot accurately decide the absolute limits of a definition. And that's where the fallacy of the beard comes in. When do whiskers become a beard? All right. <laughs> so what I'm doing is I'm showing that when you say, when is a cup empty, right? When it has zero molecules or when you look in it and it's empty. There's and not enough in there to drink. <laughs> right. And the same thing is, you know, when do whiskers become a beard? This reminds me of that old George Carlin routine about my beard is weird. Oh, no, I haven't heard it. Oh, that's hilarious. He used to do that on the Ed Sullivan show years ago. I'm does showing my age by saying that, but... Does he talk about what the definition of a beard is, whether it's just whiskers? He, he just goes into a little funny monologue about, you know, my beard is weird, and then he goes on and on and on. It's, it, it's, it doesn't make okay. much sense, but it's hilarious to listen to it. All right. Well, this might not make much sense to some people, but <laughs> but the point about it is that some people will argue that you can't talk about a beard because you don't you can't define exactly when a beard begins. Right. Right. When do whiskers become a, a beard? Is it a beard after three days growth or do you have to wait seven days? Right. Right? And what if somebody's whiskers grow faster than another? Is it a certain length maybe? You know, is it do whiskers become a beard when they're a quarter of an inch long? Or do they have to be a half an inch long? to be considered a beard. Now, here's, here's even making it more complicated. You could go even further back and say, when does my stubble become whiskers? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. If I'm clean shaven, but yet you could get an electron scanning microscope and show that, oh, look, there's a whisker that's sticking above the level of the skin. Sure. Right. Right. So it becomes ridiculous. So we don't want to fall into that ridiculousness of the fallacy of the beard. So I continued <laughs> on. I said that it's a mistake to think that we cannot speak intelligently about something like a beard just because we don't know its limits. Sure. Like the cup of coffee, we're safe to say it's empty even though there might be a single molecule of coffee still there. Otherwise, communication begins to break down. 
So yeah, like it know, is now. <laughs> I'm getting confused. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If we don't, you know, if we just are going to control each other's definitions of words down to the minutest detail, right. um, we're going to run into problems. Yep. Your head starts to spin. So then he goes on to say, if you have a different definition of what is a universal negative versus a particular negative, please let me know. Before you brought it up, I had never given it any thought. I enjoyed the opportunity to look it up and learn. Thank you, SK. So I finished off by saying, enjoyed your email, Keith Kendrick. So very interesting, getting some good, intelligent responses from some of our atheist listeners out there. That one was excellent. And now we know what the difference between a universal and a particular negative is. I exactly. Think. <laughs> in case anybody wanted to know. Right. Where does that come in useful? Why is that important to know? Because it shows that it's irrational to posit atheism. It's irrational to, for an atheist to say that he knows there is no God. Or even to assert that there is no God. So wouldn't it be safe to say um, when an atheist says there is no God, technically he's really saying there are no gods. He's making, a, in other words, a universal negative. Exactly. Most he's making a universal negative. He's, he's saying that there is no category of things like gods. Nothing. There's it's no not, they don't usually say there is no Jehovah, which would right. be a particular negative. Right. And that is open to question. You'd have to compare the evidence, evidence for and against, right. and see, see which holds up. Right. All right, well, let's jump into the topic of the day. We finished last week talking about critical thinking, why it's important. We looked at a study about college students that showed that they're just not getting their money's worth. They're not a large percentage of them are not making any progress in the ability to think critically. Right. And thinking critically is incredibly important for all of us. I went through some examples of some ways that I had been fooled into believing things that were not true, and that was all because of the inability to think critically. So personally, I've spent decades studying critical thinking, logic, and examining arguments for and against as best I could to try to avoid falling into the trap of believing something's true when it really isn't. Right. And so let's, most let's of let's face it, critic, thinking critically is getting more and more difficult because of our mass media and our information-soaked society today. There's so much information coming at you from every direction now. It, mm -hmm. It's really difficult to be able to prune out what really has some substance to it and what sounds like it has substance but really doesn't. Right, right. And these guidelines for critical thinking that we're sharing with our listeners are really, really valuable today because it helps you to weed out a lot of the junk that's there. You can spot logical errors. You right. can spot fallacies. It's becoming more and more important to do that because of the massive amounts of information that are being thrown at us. Absolutely. And propaganda. Yeah, exactly. Don't forget propaganda. We'll be covering that in detail 
And also one of the things I think that often gets overlooked, I mean, I've seen and I have several books on the topics of critical thinking, and they do cover things like logic and fallacies and propaganda. But one of the things they leave out that we'll be discussing later on is the reasons why people believe things. Okay. Why do people accept arguments and not other arguments? Why do people accept bad arguments? Why do they believe things when there's little or no evidence? And believe it or not, there are a lot of reasons why human beings accept some things as being true and not believing other things. I was just going to say that. I can think of a whole bunch of them almost right away. Right, right. You know, like my mother told me that, or my teacher told me that, or... Uh, yeah. you know, how exactly. I feel about something rather than the way I think about it. There's, there's just, you could go on and on about why right. people believe different things. Yep. So we will jump into that. We might get to that today. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we're going to be talking about logic, fallacies, uh, arguments and how what makes a good argument what makes a bad argument if you'd like to join the conversation you can call us at 609-398-1020 and i assume that you're listening live if you're going to call us otherwise podcast doesn't work <laughs> and they can send us emails too ah that's true just like our our friend sk uh-huh. you can email us at k kendricks so K-K-E-N-D-R-E-X at evidenceforfaith.com. Evidence, the number four, faith.com. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's one of the things that I learned early on, and it made a huge difference over the past decades on thinking and recognizing when people are making mistakes in their thinking. And it's called the laws of thought. Or the laws of logic, it's sometimes called, but actually logic is based on these laws of thought. Now, there's three main laws of thought, and these are the rules by which your brain works. Okay, without these laws of thought, you cannot think clearly, and you can't make clear statements. You can't communicate information to someone else's mind. Okay. Okay. So let's go through those. The first is the law of identity. Have you ever heard of this? Mm, I don't think so. Not by that title. All right. Law of identity. And an algebraic kind of definition of it would be A equals A. Okay. So when I'm making a statement or thinking a thought or believing something or giving a premise in an argument or writing a sentence, if a statement is true, then it's true. Okay? Now, I know that sounds well, that makes really sense. basic. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Now, the, but you know what? We have to start at the foundational level. You have to start at the basic foundational levels. If you make a mistake at the basic levels, then everything else that you're thinking or saying is going to be wrong. Right. 
So we have to start at the very basic levels. And believe it or not, people make this mistake. In fact, I'll give you an example of it. But first, let me just, well, okay, let's start with the, we'll start with the example right now. Ever heard anybody say this? Christianity may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Oh, yeah. I've heard that a lot. Yeah, exactly. Do you and, know and you could that, stick almost anything else in there in place of Christianity, and you've heard that said. Exactly. The idea that something can be true for me, but not true for you, that violates the very first law of thought. That is, I don't know, next to craziness. You can't <laughs> even think clearly if you're going to think that way. Right. So... A statement is true. If a statement's true, then it's true. If Christianity is true for me, then it's true for you. Okay? This is just one of the basic facts of life, facts of nature. It's a law of thought. See, the person says Christianity may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Even that sentence that the person's using, they're trying to use this law of identity they're trying to say that their statement is true and must be true for me, right? Otherwise, what else does it mean if I try to communicate to you? And Kirk, if I tried to convince you Christianity may for, be true for you, but it's not true for me, aren't I trying to tell you something that's true? That, that kind of reminds me of like when you're a little kid and your parents want you to do something and you say the, the first question every kid responds with is well why why do I have to do that and they say just because <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's like that's not a good enough answer <laughs> that's it's almost the same thing as what we're talking about when we're saying well you might think that's true but I don't think that's true yeah do, do well get what I mean it, now it, that actually that would the way you phrase that that would be acceptable yes you can I, say you might think it's true but I don't think it's true. And then you would then just follow up with some examples of your evidence, you know, why your belief is, is actually the one that's true. Would it be safe to say that possibly most people, when they say, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me, what they really mean is you think that's true, but I don't think it's true? Or are they simply fudging the question? Yeah, I hope that they do mean that because that would actually be an acceptable definition. But usually they don't. They've they've bought into postmodernism. They bought into the idea that truth actually is different for one person versus another person. And that simply can't be. If that were true, then all communication breaks down. I could never present something to you. I could never say hey, Kirk, look out for that stop sign. Because that wouldn't necessarily be true for you. And it's just my bad luck that I happen to be in the same car with you. <laughs> right? I mean, the bus... Well, the that bus stop sign isn't true for me. It might be true for you. And right. then I go through the intersection and get in an accident. <laughs> exactly, because the bus that was true for me that's barreling down on us... <laughs> Also, it was true for him. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Okay. So Yes, I, I, I see. 
I hope if that you're, clear. If you're framing this as as your opinion versus my opinion, then that kind of makes sense. But if you're trying to say, well, this may be reality for you, but it's not reality for me, that doesn't make any sense. Exactly. Because right. it's either real or it isn't. Correct. Correct. Gotcha. Now, the, the nice thing about this law of thought is that sometimes you'll hear somebody say nothing is true or how do you know that something is true or, or prove to me that something is true. You can use this law of identity. You can say, I can make a statement that absolutely must be true. And it's the statement A equals A. Okay. Right? That right. must be true. Right. Now, another area where this comes into play is when we make a mistake called equivocation. And that's where we change the definition of a word in mid-argument. <laughs> so if I'm talking about an apple, right, if you and I are going to have a conversation about an apple, we have to be talking about the apple, right? We actually have to talk about the apple. The same Not, thing. Yeah, we right. have to be talking about the same thing. So that's where A equals A comes in. You know, I, this... can't, I can't be talking to you about the apple that I had for lunch when what I really mean by apple is computer, <laughs> right? We have to be right, right. an apple computer. This reminds me of a guy that I used to know. We used to get into really interesting, um, I'm going to call them conversations, but they were probably arguments all the time mm -hmm. because he would apply his own definitions uh, to words. And then yes. I would be applying the traditional definition to the word, but we would go round and round in circles because he'd actually be talking about something different than I was talking about. Yes. But asserting it was the same thing right yes by and that is definitely violating this law of identity and that used to drive me nuts i mean we could never get anywhere <laughs> right because we, to, we weren't on the same page as far as what the words meant to begin with right and have you noticed that a lot of the emails that we get from atheists is about this very subject about what is the definition of words yep for instance what's the definition of an agnostic well, you and I know the traditional definition that's been, you know, hundreds of years right. of definition, but atheists want to change that definition now because it bolsters their numbers. And, I, and also because of that argument that we talked about that asserting atheism, pure atheism, is actually irrational. Right. So they, in order to avoid that, they want to claim that they're really agnostics when they're not. Right. And that's where you can have a lot of nonsense going on if if i'm talking about atheism and you're really you're using the word atheism but by it you you have defined it as agnosticism yeah you just go around and around in circles that's right the communication just can't go forward so we yep. have to basically beat each other up over what the <laughs> definition of a certain word is i've been that's, in many conversations with people like that yep. another tricky word that comes to my mind is evolution Oh, a excellent. lot of people define the word evolution in totally different ways. And it really helps if you're going to talk to somebody about that subject 
to first define what do you mean by evolution and then yes. go from there. That's or right. else, again, you, you can go round and round and round in circles, which I've done many times. Yeah, because they will say that evolution is true, and by it they mean macroevolution. Right. And you will say to them, well, there's no evidence for evolution, meaning macroevolution. And then what do they do? They equivocate or they switch definitions on you and say, oh, yes, there is. Here's evidence and they'll mention the peppered moth or fruit fly experiments or whatever, and they'll say, see, that's evolution. And but now They'll give you evidence for microevolution, but exactly right. assert that it's actually macroevolution, macro which are two different things, really. That's right. They'll, yes. Yeah, it's what really you could define it as adaptation. Yes. So they'll, they'll show you evidence for adaptation and claim that it's proof for evolution just by merely naming it evolution. Right. And it's really not. It's really adaptation. And really, we can avoid a lot of arguments simply by um, pointing out right away what we mean, whether we mean micro or macro evolution, because you could go on and on and on about micro evolution, and it's like, well, I agree with all that. I don't have any problem yes. with that. Exactly. The only thing I have a problem with is one species changing into another. And even and that's there, that's what you again, need to argue about. <laughs> well, but even there, you still have got the definitional problem of what is a species. Yep. Even there, you know, like the drop in the coffee cup, you can get into you know endless debates about well, what's a species? <laughs> right. Okay. So that is the law of identity. A equals a. Okay. Now that's the first law of thought. Okay. If you're going to think clearly, you have to use the law of identity. The second law is like unto the first law, and it's called the law of non-contradiction. Okay. Okay? Now, algebraically, let's describe it this way. A does not equal non-A. All right? Okay. Is that, is that clear? That's sort of, it's almost like the negative of the first law. It's the right. inverse of it. A right. does not equal non-A. Okay, what do I mean me. by that? <laughs> so again, it's so basic, right? It seems obvious, right? Yes. Okay. Sure. To describe it a little more clearly, let's say, let's say that a statement, okay, now by statement I could mean a sentence, I could mean a belief, I could mean a thought, I could mean a premise, okay, a statement cannot be both true and false. Okay? The and same statement can't be true and false at the same time. That's right. At the in the same at the same time and in the same way. Right. Okay. Let me uh, give you an example. Somebody might say, let's say the statement Jesus is God, okay? We would as a Christian we claim Jesus is God. Okay. So a non-Christian says to us, well, I agree that you think Jesus is God, but he's also, but, or, well, I guess it would say, he would say, I agree that the sentence is true, but it's also false. Okay? Did that make sense? Not to me. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, let's, we'll try it again. Okay, let's see. How can I say this? If I say 
I agree Jesus is God, but he's also not God. Do you see what I've done? Yes. Well, that's you're saying A equals non-A, right? Um, well, yeah, you're giving the algebraic term again. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm basically contradicting myself. Right. All right, well, uh, I guess we've got a caller on the line. So let's put our caller on and see what he has to say. Oh, this could get good. <laughs> Welcome, caller. Hello. Uh, am I on? You are on the air. Oh, great. Uh, well, I'm calling uh, regarding all this stuff, and it seems uh, you've gone over it again and again, but I thought I'd just kind of look at things or try to present things from my perspective. I'm a, a former Moody Bible Institute uh, student, a Christian great. of 25 years, and just in the past year I've actually become an atheist slash agnostic. And what I'd like to present is this idea that keeps coming up that atheism, which means uh, no God, is simply the, um, just non-belief in a theistic God. That does not mean at all that there can't be a God in the universe. Therefore, the position of being both atheist and agnostic simultaneously does in fact work. Does that make sense to you? Uh, yeah, it does. I see where you're going. When you say you are an atheist, you don't mean I assert that there are no gods of any kind. You're exactly. saying I don't believe in uh, a the Christian god. god? A god who has revealed him, her, or itself. Um, okay. Allah, so so you might fit into the category of a deist? Um, yeah, but it, even in this sense, I mean, an agnostic deist, uh, in the sense that okay. there very well may be some god out there in the sense of the, the prime mover or what have you, but even right. that can't be totally ascertained. Okay, so and so by agnostic you mean, I, I don't know, I don't have enough information to know whether there is such a god or not. Yeah, and I, and I think, I mean, in the past ten months that it's been that I've taken this position from... Um, evangelical Christian, I've learned in all of my reading and discussions with other atheist agnostics and so on, that there are very few atheists who say that there is no God in the universe. Right. That's, that's right. And, and the reason is, I guess you heard the show from the beginning? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, so th the reason is because it isn't a rational statement to make. That's why they don't. It's it's they used to do that actually, but then they got beat up enough, you know, so that nobody tries to claim it anymore. So I'm curious as to what led you down this road. Did you did you read a, a book or something or? Uh, well, I, I think that um, I mean I actually went to Moody Bible Institute with the intention of becoming a missionary, which is neither here nor there in the conversation. But uh, just to let you know that I was very solidly in in the Christian position. Um, after several decades of just having some difficult questions and trying to ask them at various Bible studies and things to that effect, and, and having lots of Christians kind of steer around those conversations, um, I decided last summer to give myself permission to just read anything and everything and ask whatever questions came my way in mm -hmm. pursuit of an answer to, I guess, the idea of, of, of truth, which, which relates to what you're talking about now. And mostly it was reading the Old Testament, looking at the context of ancient history, and, um, and, and honestly, a lot of it had to do with Christian apologetics. 
Um, I mean, the presentation of Lee Strobel or Josh McDowell or uh, William Lane Craig or, or anybody, you name it, very often um, they misrepresent the other side. And that's really why I'm calling. Well, let me let me ask you this then. You, you're basically asserting here, because I asked you how you came to come down this road, and you claimed that you came down this road by reading the Old Testament and by listening to Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. So, Well, well uh, honestly, I mean, what, what really got me to this point was, was reading the Old Testament um, with an open mind, if you will. And then, yes, listening to lots of, of podcasts as I worked in the garden. I'm a school teacher, so I had the summer off, and mm-hmm. I just listened to lots of podcasts, debates. Um, I mean, it, the numbers of books and, and things that I read and listened to is quite significant. And this is just the position that I've come to. What I'm concerned okay, so, about now... So, so I, I'm just to clarify, um, the books that you read, anything by, by Dawkins? Um, I have started The God Delusion, and I have The Greatest Show on Earth, but neither of those really grabbed my attention. They, they just didn't hold me that much. Uh-huh. And it was, uh, did, you know, some did. of uh, Bart Ehrman's thing. On, on, okay. Uh, I read, you know, uh, his two big Jesus Interrupted, misquoting Jesus. Uh-huh. Um, but I also have read, uh, you know, um, what's his name, um, Answers in Genesis, Ken Ham's books, and... Um, Lee Strobel's things, and, and a lot of things from both sides. But, but here's my, my, my thought. My thought is this. Both Christians and the atheist agnostic crowd, there, there's this big chasm there. And I still desire to talk to my Christian friends and to discuss this question. Sure. I thought is big enough that any Christian should be able to um, just simply talk about some of the problems, um, mm-hmm. even the problems that, that, that led me to where I'm at. But when Christians are saying things, I mean, I feel honestly that, that you're presenting this idea that this is what atheists are, and they're leading to this terrible worldview, and Hitler's an atheist, and, you know, the 54 atheists killed so many millions. Um, you know, I mean, you, you see what I'm saying. What, what's happening is the chasm is, is, is deepening. And I feel like um, there, there may be your side, the Christian side, and the atheist side, there should be more of a promotion of dialogue. I could agree with that. I I think that's a great idea. I think there should be more uh, calm, rational discussion of different points of view instead of, you know, yelling and screaming back and forth or saying, you know, I'm right and you're an idiot and that type of thing. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't catch your first name. I'm, My name is I, I don't want to just call you caller. <laughs> yeah, yes, I'm, uh, Vincent. Okay, Vince. So, uh, Vince, did you hear our debate with... The atheist we had about a month and a half ago? That is actually how I found you. Um, I I first, um, yeah, I I heard that that debate. And then I've listened to a number of your shows going all the way back, um, you know, on morality and um, on Answers in Genesis and, you know, all kinds of things. So, yes, I've listened to both you and and them. Okay. Well, I'm still curious about your transition from becoming a Christian. What you said that there were a lot of tough questions, or you became, you began to hear things from Bart Ehrman and stuff, and, and people didn't have answers for them? Yeah. Now, the thing is, I, I don't just, re- you know, I, I know there are two sides to everything. I really do. I realize mm-hmm. that Ehrman says there are all these, you know, hundreds of thousands of mistakes, 
and so on. But then you can go and look. Well, most of them are just the and un misspellings and that sort of thing. But some of them are admittedly significant. Um, but you know, here's the thing: it comes down to that. There's always two sides to this. What ended up making sense to me that I got to the position that I was is just the inconsistencies in the Bible. And I don't want to debate the inconsistencies, but looking at the Old Testament laws, stoning your children, you know, burning your daughter if she plays, plays the harlot and comes home pregnant, and uh, beating your slave, and so on. I mean, and then what happens in the genocides of, of, you know, when they're clearing out the Canaanites, and I know there's an explanation for that. William Craig goes into that and so on. But that just all is so inconsistent with who God should be, who God is elsewhere in the Bible. And it just made sense to me, when you look at the context of ancient history, that, you know, this, this stuff was kind of put together, and, and it serves a need. You know, there is a need for morality, but even with God, I don't see objective, absolute morality there, because morality, you know, I mean, it's all over the place. Um, but that's kind of where I'm coming from. That's what it it sounds to. like you see a contradiction between, if I can put this simply, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And therefore, if there's a contradiction, then that's kind of undermined your belief in the Bible as a whole, as being right in what it says. Is that? Am I anywhere near the truth there? Yes and no. I mean, you know, we're under a new covenant. Uh, Jesus changed things and, and so on. Yes, but if you just look at the idea that Jesus walked around healing the sick and, and who, who prayed for the men who are crucifying him, he is the very same God who said to stone your children if they speak back to your parents, or who killed even infinite infants, you know, at the Noahic flood time because there was no one righteous but no one in his family. And some of these things are just... It, it just doesn't make sense. And uh, again, there are ways to justify things. God can't tolerate sin and, and so on. But to me, it just became very clear when I allowed myself to look at this, that this, this God that must exist is one that, that hasn't revealed himself in a book. Uh, now, so that's interesting. So you do actually believe that God does exist? Oh, I, I believe that there very well may be. Uh, I, I mean... I mean, honestly, I know this can get to be where you, you know, you, you can say this, this is just a horrible place where it's going. God existed at one point, and God no longer exists. Um, you know, that goes against the Kalam cosmological argument and the eternality of a creator. But I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows if God does exist. But a God may exist. But I still would hold myself as a an atheist in terms of Ganesh and Shiva and Allah and Jehovah and so on. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, I also don't think that that makes the world, my point of view, makes the world to this bleak, purposeless, you know, immoral place. I think that there are lots of atheists, and it would be good for Christians to give them credit. There are lots of atheists out there who really want to make the world a better place, who believe that purpose is in... Uh, helping humanity and this world to become the best that it can possibly be. And that doesn't mean that these human beings are necessarily worshiping man and man's uh, knowledge or, or so on. And I think Christians can enter into that dialogue without pointing fingers and saying Hitler and Stalin and so on, and just say, you know what, they don't believe in our God, but can we still work towards making humanity um, workable? Well, I, I appreciate that, but I, and I do agree that there are many 
fine and upstanding atheists out there. I have several as friends. You know, I mean, I, that's such a silly thing to say, but I'm, it's still the truth. Uh, you know, I don't have any particular animosity of, against atheists themselves. I have a great deal of concern over the logical consequences of the atheistic worldview. But even there, is it really logical? I mean, yes, is it, 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 it equally, really is. Well, it's equally logical to say that God commanded the Israelites to, you know, blast out the various uh, pagan peoples of Canaan, and so God may do the same thing now. I mean, genocide could be committed by either side. I know that's, well, contrary to the character of God, but it happened throughout the Old Testament. Well, um, actually, you know, we haven't really delved much into that on, on the show. I think, Kirk, we should definitely do for a show, we should do this argument that the uh, new atheists have that God is an evil God and he wants to kill all Canaanites. You know, the these different accusations about God being immoral, we should definitely get into that and, and go, because there are a lot of really good answers to uh, those arguments. My, You know, I, just, I can kind of relate to what Vince is saying also, because when I was first, you know, investigating in my early 20s the different religions of the world and trying to make some sense out of it all, I have to admit that, that I had the same concerns about some of the things that I had read in the Old Testament. It's like, wow, that's really nasty stuff. What kind of a God is this? And I, I, I can understand some of the passages being a little hard to take, especially from the modern mindset. But, I, you know, we don't have enough time really to answer his question yeah, totally here. But, but I would say what helped me in the end was to um, study more about the context of the Old Testament and the, the way uh, cultures were, were different back then and that uh, they saw things differently and God dealt with them in different ways because in, of how different they were back then. That's right. He, but, he but dealt with them in the context time. of their uh, understanding of things. And the other thing to remember, and we do have to let you go, I'm sorry, Vince, but the other thing to remember is that all life, the life that we have, every human being draws that life it's all borrowed from god without god there is no life at all so god has the freedom to give or take life and it's and he is perfectly just so it and he has the right to do that we don't have the right to take life in his name now only he has the right premise that is the case though i mean that is a premise yes and and so there it is now, I, I know there, we're running out of time, but one last thing I'd like to say as a dedicated listener, which I now am, is that when, when we represent information, especially as leaders in, in a Christian or atheistic community, you cannot misrepresent the other side. And, and I, I honestly, I mean, I'd love to come back on the show and simply talk about this if you'd be interested. Vince, why don't, you, uh, why don't you email our website and we could talk to you more through email. Okay, right. I'll do that. Or, or give us another call is fine on a, on a future show. Um, but um, Yeah, I would like to talk to Vince more through email about this stuff. You know, we could go into more detail about it. Absolutely. And I, I deny that we are inaccurately describing the bloody results of 
atheism. Atheism leads to death and destruction. Nietzsche predicted it, was driven crazy by the concept. Dostoevsky explained it very well in his novels. You know, atheism leads to death and destruction. You can borrow your morality from Christianity as much as you want to and stay good, but if you follow atheism to its logical conclusion, it will end in bloodshed. So I am not inaccurately describing the results of atheism. Well, Kirk, we've got a few minutes, so let's quickly finish up on, on these last laws of thought. We talked about the law of non-contradiction, so a statement can't be both true and false. Right. So if I say that, let's give it a Christian example. A lot of people say there are contradictions in the Bible, right? Maybe right. Uh, there were two women who came to the well, and another verse says there were three women. Okay. okay? Well, that's not a contradiction. If I were to say that some women went to the tomb, what did I say, the well? Yes. The tomb. Okay, some women went to the tomb. And then I say, no women went to the tomb. That would be a contradiction. Right. But to say, if three women went to the tomb, and then someone else says that one particular woman went to the tomb, guess what? They're That's not correct. a contradiction. They can both be correct. Yes, because if three women went, then obviously one woman did go. Right. Along with two others. Right. All right, the last law, I think we've got time for this. The last law is the law of the excluded middle. Now, with these three laws, you've got the laws of thought. So the excluded middle is A or non-A. Right. Okay, that's the algebraic explanation, A or non-A. A statement cannot fall in the middle between true and false. Okay, so there's no middle ground. If a statement is not true, then it's false. Okay? Okay. And a lot of atheists sometimes will argue that they say, well, I don't believe that there's no God. I just don't believe, right? Well, what you, what you don't believe is that there's a God. So if you don't believe that there's a God, then you believe that there is no God, right? There isn't any middle ground. Right. It's either true or it's false. If you don't believe it's true, then you believe it's false. Right. Okay. So there's no middle ground. You can't make up a sentence, a statement, a thought, or a belief that is somewhere between true and false. It either is true or it is false. Okay. So that's the, the laws of thought. We'll continue on next week with more critical thinking skills. We'll get into fallacies and what they are and what difference they make to believing something or not. Sounds interesting. This has been the Evidence for Faith show. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. <laughs>